Stew here. I'm very proud to announce that Spoilers, my award-winning climate change comedy show, is returning to the Edinburgh Festival on the 12th, 13th and 14th of August. You can get your tickets at stuartgoldsmith.com on the little orange banner, or you can just go to edfringe.com and search my name. I mean, that's what I'd do. Whether you're a die-hard, north-face-wearing climate dude, or whether you are just a regular person who's a little bit nervous about all the news you're seeing and doesn't really know what to think, there's something there for you. It's really fun and funny, and I think you're going to love it. See you there. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is The Comedian's Comedian, in which we try to get under the skin and into the brains of your favourite comedians and find out how they write their material, how they cope with the pressures of a creative life and much, much more. Today, I'm going to be talking to Susie McCabe, who was, until recently, a huge gap in my knowledge of the comedy pantheon. Uh, She's a new discovery for me and uh, I hope for you too, if you're unfamiliar with her. She continues to be one of the fastest selling acts at the Glasgow International Comedy Festival. She has multiple Scottish comedy awards under her belt and she is emphatically Glaswegian. And we're going to find out what that means in the first half of this episode as we discuss Susie's meteoric. And I don't use that term lightly. This is a meteoric rise in comedy. We're going to talk about her experience working in manual labour and bringing that into her comedy, not just in terms of her material, her approach, but also her whole understanding of what it means to be a person. You can join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, where you can watch the full episode. You can watch it. You heard that right. You can watch the full episode and also get access to over 17 minutes. That's a funny sentence, isn't it? Over 17 minutes, should we say 18 minutes, of bonus features, including Susie's advice on learning from bad gigs and the cultural differences that came about when she was performing in Australia. So without further ado, this is Susie McKay. Welcome to the podcast, Susie McCabe. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's And you're in Glasgow right now. Do you still live I in am. Glasgow? Yes, yes, yes. I will not be leaving. I, I don't think any other city would have me, to be honest. I think they'd be like, no, let's start a petition. Get her out. She is not one of us. You've described yourself in the past as emphatically Glaswegian. Yeah. yeah. What, does that, like, what does that mean? What are the things that make that up? Because it's such, you're someone for whom that cultural identity is so strong in you and so mm. important to you. What is that actually? This isn't the beginning I had in mind at all. But while we're on it, well, <laughs> tell me what that what does that mean to you? What are those qualities? I think uh, I think Glasgow's a city that gets under your skin, you know. And I've stayed in Glasgow my entire life, and I stayed in a. I was brought up in a place called Garahill, which is like a nice bit of the East End, right? And I went to school in a place called Coatbridge, which was a different county and even though it was like three miles up the road it was really different but my whole life has been spent pretty much in and around the east end I was mar- I, I was married for a couple of years I'd been in a very long relationship and I, st- I went back to Coatbridge and stayed there um but yeah I, I'll always be Glaswegian and I think I'll always be quite east end Glasgow as well you know it's a very Glasgow much like Newcastle Liverpool Belfast um these cities 
have so much to offer. There's they're, they're you know post industrial working class, and that's where I think you get a lot of grit. And where there is grit, there is creativity. And where there is creativity, that's when you can produce art if we're going to be pretentious about it. But <laughs> you know, you look at places like Sheffield, Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester, Belfast, Glasgow, they are very distinct cities with very distinct identities. And then like even places like Leeds, stuff like that, you know, and they've contributed to the United Kingdom. And sometimes they've 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 not been better off for it. You know, and I think there's where you've kind of got that thing post industry. You know, I was brought up in the nineteen eighties, and Glasgow was quite a grim place in the nineteen eighties. And what you also find is with a lot of these cities is they can be quite grim, or they have been quite grim, but the people are great. And I don't even just mean in a in an audience capacity. I just mean. If you're walking through any of those cities and you're trying to find somewhere and you're not quite sure where you're going, you can ask anyone and they will help you out. You can stand at a bar in any of those cities and someone will speak to you. You can sit and have a bit of lunch and read a book and someone will be like, oh, what's that you're reading? It's just a very... And I suppose it is a very class thing as well. It's a very working class thing. And they do these these cities get under your skin. And I think when you've been brought up in that... And it defines you because in Glasgow especially, and I'm only talking about Glasgow because it's the one place I know like the back of my hand, you can be walking down a beautiful tree-lined street with Victorian townhouses and tenements and then you turn the corner and you're like, was this street in train spotting? Because it looks like it was in train spotting. And I love that. I love that about Glasgow. And it's the type of city... It doesn't let you forget where you've came from. You know, when you've grown up within the confines of the city, because what you need to remember about Glasgow is Glasgow's a reasonable-sized city, but it has a massive conurbation. It's got uh, North Ayrshire, South Ayrshire, East Ayrshire, all within 20 miles of it. Then you kind of go further down, and then you've got North Lanarkshire, South Lanarkshire, massive super counties, and Glasgow kind of draws those people into it whereas you know like you'll go to Birmingham and Birmingham's a massive city but you'll know this you ask the audience where are you from and they'll be from Dudley they don't identify as being from Birmingham whereas someone will be like oh I'm from Kilmarnock but they identify and the the kind of sphere and the conurbation of Glasgow will always kind of suck them in so I think it gets under your city and I think always find as well and where you have had Irish immigration into a city, culturally that's had a massive impact for good and for bad. In Glasgow and Liverpool, both have the good and the bad out it. You know, the, the kind of sectarian divide and stuff like that. Glasgow's a bit more serious about its sectarian divide. But there's a thing within kind of Irish culture, and even if we want to go down the route of Catholicism, of that whole idea of sitting around a coffin, singing a song, telling stories. And art comes from that. In the same way, if you look at the southern states of America and you look at some of the music that came from chain gangs, you know, and these were people that were subjected. And in many ways in Britain, that that's what happened to the Irish. 
and I can't I can only talk about it from the Irish perspective because I'm like fifth or sixth generation, so it's that kind of tradition thing. And that is something that I think when you've been oppressed or when you've come from an oppressed place and your ancestors have and there's certain traditions of songs and jokes and stories, that then comes out in art. You know, if you look at a lot of well, if you look at three Scottish comedians off the top of the bat, Conley, Bridges and Boyle, they are all from that background. Mm-hmm. They're all from there and they're all from a working class background. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at someone like Nicholas Parsons, so do you know the story of Nicholas Parsons in Glasgow? I don't, I don't. So Nicholas Parsons says that Glasgow made him. Okay. And the story was, and I just think this is a fan, this sums up this one Britain and to this city in a nutshell. Nicholas Parsons wanted to go into his art in the arts, and his father thought this was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. So he sent him up to Glasgow to live with an uncle, I think in Mulgay or Bears Den, which is a very posh suburb of Glasgow. And I think the uncle might have been a doctor. <clears throat> and they got him a, a job in the shipyards, in the Glasgow shipyards. Okay. And there was this very polite, middle-class English lad working in the shipyards at a particularly grim time when poverty and housing and all that was prevalent for those men who were working in the shipyards. And one day... Somebody had said something at lunchtime and he had done an impression of whoever they were talking about. And all these big navvies laughed and wrote, can you do an impression of him? Can you do an impression of me? So this is what happened. And then at night time he was going out and he was performing in the music halls of Glasgow where rumour has it they took nuts and bolts and threw them at you if you were terrible, right? (laughs) So he would go out and he'd perform in these music halls and he would do these things and he could sing and he would tell jokes and he would do impressions and do all that and he was a rip-roaring success. And then he gets sent back down to England and the uncle was like, look, he's really good. So the dad set up a meeting with an agent and the agreement was the dad would leave the room, Nicholas Parsons would do his thing, and the agent would tell him he was terrible. And he goes okay. into the meeting. Okay, that was set up by his dad. Set up by his dad. Him. Got it understood, yeah. Get him into university, go and study medicine and be the doctor that my education has subsequently, that I've paid for. I've paid sure. for you. I'm not having you walking about in music halls telling jokes and doing impressions. The agent goes, right, on you go. He does all these impressions, does his stuff. The dad comes back in and the agent says, I've got a contract here for him to sign. And that's how <laughs> Nicholas Parsons... And Nicholas Parsons possibly, you know, the the epitome of Middle England, if you like, wasn't he? You know, yeah. that you and I grew up with and his manner and the way he conducted himself and everything that was kind of... That you look at as middle-class traditional British society, he encapsulated... But he said it was because he had his training in Glasgow yeah. that allowed him to become the entertainer that he was. And I just think that's just such a beautiful, wonderful story. It tells you everything about this city. And and they took them, took them, took him to their hearts, you know, and that's and you'll know that from coming here. Like I remember talking to Nick Page, and Nick Page, like, first thing I learned about gigging in Glasgow is slag yourself. And for those of you who don't know Nick, Nick, <laughs> Nick. Could not look any more 
English and British if he tried. Like, he looks like a man that would enjoy a date at the rugby and a date at the cricket. And he sounds like a man that would enjoy a date at the rugby and a date at the cricket. And he probably does. And he's a, he's a wonderful human being. But <laughs> Nick said, I remember being quite nervous going onto the stand in Glasgow. And the first thing he'd done was slag himself. And he'd done a joke about Edinburgh. And then he could say whatever he wanted about Glasgow. <laughs> and that's yes. the city that we are. And I think it gets it gets under your skin. And there are certain perceptions of Glasgow that aren't true because when you actually spend time in it, you realise what a historical, fantastic, interesting city that always is always developing, but it always has a little bit of its history for good and for bad kicking about it. With all of that in mind... I want I want to talk about two things. One, the extent to which you are championed by your audience. Mm. Because I saw your show in Edinburgh just gone. Oh, thank I've you. Never, oh, mate, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. Thank and you. And I, sh- I should have opened with that, but there was I wasn't expecting an incredible... I had no idea. <laughs> I, had, I had no idea you were in. That's so Oh, no, of lovely. course, of course. No, no, no. I wouldn't have anyone on the show if I hadn't seen them and, and loved them. Um, the, the extent to which you were... Held to your audience's bosom, right? Like you played. I've never seen the beginning of a show like it. Before you came on, you played. There's like a chase light sequence, you know, just a mic on stage, no props, no sort of set or anything. You played the whole of tragedy. <laughs> I think you played the entire track. It was like and the a minute, audience, a minute, yeah. Oh God! Well, I was like, here's a sting. She's not coming on. She's still not. Coming. Is this the whole song? And I was thinking, I've never really seen anyone do this before. It was like you were playing the O2 in the Assembly Studio Two or whichever it was, and the audience went bananas. And this is an audience who, and I'm, I am from the generic South, right? So I, I I've, I've performed in. Um, I performed it all over Scotland. I performed all over the north, and particularly, I think the quality you're talking about is. Um, I most recognise it from when I used to do street shows in Manchester and Chester and York. They were tougher audiences, but when you won them, you won them, and they were incredibly. Like I remember, we'd have situations where you'd you'd, you'd go out, you'd be a little two little scared southern boys, and we'd go out and do our street show, and uh, and then we'd win an audience over, and then someone would. I remember some kid on a skateboard heckling us. And a looming figure from the crowd just removed the kid. And we were like, I hope he's okay. Don't hurt him. We felt championed. Yeah. That quality, I've never... Honestly, you walked on stage. As people were coming in, I was thinking, he's pissed. He's going to be trouble. They're off their heads. They might be a Hindu. Fucking hell. She's going to have a work cut out. You didn't get a peep out of them because you're the people's champion. And I just... I wondered, is that quality... Well, first, do you recognise that and how do you feel about it? And then I have follow-up questions. So I think that's a, what a lovely description and thank you for that. So I am, um, and I think, I think Glasgow and Scotland are like that. I think we take people and we go, they're ours. Like you look at us with Andy Murray and we're like, hey, hey. <laughs> I, he can play in the Olympics, but he's still ours, right? There, yeah, there yeah. is a thing like that with his uh, Connolly, Bridges, Boyle. And sometimes, you know, that can work conversely where you see that kind of ownership of yours, but yours. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to grow an audience without a particularly massive online following with regards to reels and clips and stuff like that. I was, I wanted to look at that because my assumption was, oh, she must have half a million followers on Instagram or something like that, but no. No, and I I, I started, uh, I done my first solo show 2013 uh, and I done it in a pub 
the Dram, which is about 200 yards from the Glasgow stand. And it was in a little room, 60 seats, sold it out. Had to put another one on that night, uh, sold that out. And that's when I was like, all right. And then the following year, Tommy Shepard, who is now an MP, and I think he might be the chair of the stand, but he had to basically sell his shares. But Tommy, who uh, made the stand, came up to me and said, why didn't you come to me and do a show with me? And I was like, because you own the stand. <laughs> and he went, I'll give you a show. And that really allowed me to build. So Glasgow has a comedy festival. So I'd done my first show 2013. And then my next show was like a Wednesday night at the stand. And that sold out 2014. 2015, the stand went, let's give you a Friday night. That sold out. No, let's, yeah, let's give you a Friday night. And then the following year, they went, let's give you a Saturday, but pencil in. And they sold out. And then the next year after that, I just kept writing new shows. And the next year after that, they said, okay, we'll put the Saturday night on sale. And it went on sale at like five o'clock on a Friday night and I got a phone call from the stand at seven o'clock to say, we've had to pull back an allocation because these tickets have flown out the door. And I was like, all right. And then I get another phone call like 10 minutes later going, listen, um, going to put an extra date on. We'll put it on sale 12 o'clock tomorrow. Blah, blah, blah. And this is all before I had an agent and anything like that. Yeah, and I was yeah, like, yeah. right, right, cool, cool, cool. I no bother. And I was actually, uh, had the Saturday off. I was doing a wee bit with my uh, with my then partner, my now wife. And we were, I was going to support Jason Manford for the first time at His Majesty's Theatre in Aberdeen. Okay. So we stayed the night in Dundee. We put the show on sale at 12 o'clock and I actually was in the process of touring because I was touring with the Scottish Comedy Agency who at that time were part of the Glasgow Comedy Festival. They were two companies run by the same people. Gotcha. And I had to stop in like Falkirk and do a little daft video to just sell a show and put it on Facebook. Got to Dundee. The hotel we were in had like a little swimming pool. So we're like, all right, we'll just go in there and then we'll come back and we'll order pizza. And I... I Came back into the room, got a shower, and Nicola just went, you need to look at your phone. And I looked at my phone, and the stand had sold out. And then on the Monday morning, I got called into what was then the Comedy Festival office, and they went, let's do the King's Theatre. So it was a real build. And I'd done the Fringe. I was meant to do it 2014, but I actually had a prolapse disc in my back, so I had to pull it. So I'd done it 2015, 2016. And I was in a little 40-seater stand for great and the stand always give you a really good deal they're all about promoting you through the club and, and honestly they have been so supportive and 2016 no 2017 2018 I just went on tour instead of doing the fringe because I was like nobody's really interested in me at the fringe and I went on these tours around Scotland and little places like East Kilbride which is like you know five miles six miles from my house I'd done the um, oh what was it it basically like the smaller venue and then that was like 150 sold that out and then moved to the village theater which is literally next door 300 seats and just started to really grow and people just came with me and all i all i kept trying to do was write a new show be better give people new stuff and what was happening was people were coming as you know partners or whatever and then they were bringing a group of friends and then it was becoming a thing that I was the thing that they were going to see at the comedy festival and they would come and see me in tour. And then I was going around Scotland and I had little pockets of people 
coming to see me every year and on my Facebook and stuff like that because Facebook was still like it. And it still is actually for me a really great way to sell it. And I remember doing my last show at the stand and you know Scott Agnew? You know Scott? Yeah, I know Scott, yeah. So Scott uh, came down to see the show and we were actually talking about this the other day. He said, I had read that show and I thought, I don't know how that's going to go. He goes, but I had totally not counted in the you factor of how you deliver a show. But yeah, he, he, he literally said to me at the interval in the show, because I always done 90 minutes. I always put an interval in. One for the bar, two for me, and three, this is a night out for people. Right? So for somebody to come and see you on a Saturday night as a man and wife, they have came and seen you. They have got a babysitter. They've got a restaurant, they've had their dinner, they've got a train in, they're getting a taxi home, they've maybe dropped the kids off earlier on that day at their own parents' house, whatever it may be. You can't just go on a stage for an hour and go, hey. <laughs> right, you just can't do it. You, 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 you are the cheapest part of their night, but your, your show is what their whole evening is planned sure. around. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's not yeah. the fringe, it's a, it's a comedy festival. So people kind of realised they were getting value for money for 10 quid, 12 and a half quid, and the tickets weren't particularly expensive, so they were building up and building up. And I remember Scott Agnew saying to me, I have never seen an audience like this. He went, there's, there's like quite literally a group of boys who are like 18, who look like they've just came for five sides. There's 80-year-olds... <laughs> who are in with walking sticks. Like, did you wait until the disability living allowance had landed in their bank account? He goes, there's gay couples, female and male. He says, and then there is everything from 20 to 80 heterosexual, homosexual groups of lassies, groups of guys, groups of like, you know, at the fringe this year I had this, I had 12 men came to see my show and I'll distinctly always wear Fred Perry's. And every single one of them had a different Fred Perry on, right? <laughs> it was like my football team had arrived. I was like, that lads. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were all bald, middle-aged. Adi- Adi- they basically were dressed like me. Adidas train- trainers and Fred Perry's, right? And I was just like, I love it. And I love that. And I've been to a lot of comedian shows where I've went, that's a very distinct audience. Like I've, I've walked into rooms and went, it's a lesbian comedian. That is a room literally 90% lesbians. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily get that. I get a real mix and I get Van Man, the guy who's going to work in the building site who looks at me and goes, I, I tell you what, you'd have a good laugh with her in the van when you're talking about the football. Do you have an instinct as to why that is? What qualities it is that you as a person, you as a performer or your material, which parts of those package, from day one, it sounds like that was happening. You know, people, we yeah. had that quality whereby people would come and see you and then run outside and tell all their friends. And yeah. that kind and that thing snowballed. What is it about? Because I can think of other acts who have a similar quality in different, I think of Jade Adams in the yeah. Southwest, who's just like, she's your best mate. Everyone sees her. Big powerful personality, loads of funny material, and and people just—it's like she <laughs> she converts to yeah. use a sort of sales expression. You see, Susie McCabe, she's going to convert everyone in that room. But but why and what is it? I think right. So I've always been a bit of a tomboy, so I've kind of had the best of both worlds. Where I've got all my girl pals who are like, because I'm quite camp, and I'm like, 
I am having a bath and a face mask tonight. Mm-hmm. And then I've got the lads who are like, oh, you want to sit in the pub with her on a Saturday afternoon putting on a football coupon because on a Saturday afternoon, if I'm not gigging at night, I'm having a pint and putting on my football coupon. Right? So it's genuine. I'm not, I'm not trying to be something I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm 100% that person and if you meet me in the street and talk to me about football or like the other day I, I was picking up uh, another act and we were going up to Loch Gilped I was doing a solo show and I was just getting some stuff out my boot and Celtic had just scored the last minute winner a massive Celtic fan last minute winner last kick of the ball 97th minute bang oofed Rangers were playing Aberdeen probably their biggest rivals after Celtic and I was putting something in the boot and again, a woman walking down Montrose Street in the middle of Glasgow were like, Susie, Ranger scarfs and everything. It's like, you go to the game. I hope you don't have a terrible day, but I kind of do, right? And having a <laughs> laugh with them, right? Can we get a picture? And, you know, there they are with their Ranger scarfs and me. And, and I think because they know I'm just genuine and what I talk about is, is either experiences that have happened to me or my take on something that's happened in the world and... And I, yeah, and but I'm, so and I mean it. everyone talks about that. And I've you're actually, like, what, come on, drill drill down for me. What is it? What, what like, What's your theory on what it is? For sure you're genuine. For sure you're authentic. But loads I, of people talk about their take on the world. I think there's a way in which you can take on the world. And I think as well, like, I can do it in a way where, like, you, right, so you've seen the shows. So there's a massive bit about me working in building sites. Mm-hmm. Right now, as a forty-three-year-old gay woman, that would be very easy to turn that into a feminist rant, and be quite jarring, and kind of victim it, and mm-hmm. then kind of go, you know, this was toxic masculinity and this was homophobia, which, yeah, it probably was, but twenty years ago it wasn't viewed like that, and I remember writing it and going, I don't want people not to like these men, because I like these men. I loved some of these men and these men weren't bad men. And also, for every woman and man that sat in that audience, gay, straight, black, white, whatever, you could be talking about their father, their brother, their husband, whoever it may be. And I I didn't want to be that. And I remember writing it and going, no, no, that's not how they were, and rewriting it to soften it, to say, listen, we can call it this and we can call it that, but actually what I'm saying to you is when you put a group of men together, they're fucking idiots, right? <laughs> right? In, in the nicest possible way, right? They're idiots, they're not, they're not harmful, they're not bad men, they're just idiots. And here is a prime example of men being idiots, sure, right? Sure, yeah, I get it, I get it. So there's, there's empathy and there's love for the subject. Yeah. Because the subject of what you're talking about is also the audience. Those are the people in the audience. When you say you had to soften it, that sort of implies to me that there was a sort of an initial draft that was harder. Yeah. So like when I you just... first wrote it, in what ways was it harder? Were you were you kind of reaching for a particular emotion? I think because when I was writing that element of the show, and ultimately, that show was about being a woman and feeling of failure. That if you feel, and, and you've obviously seen the arc of that show, mm-hmm. right? But when you're feeling like that, it's very easy 
to say, and these people made me feel uncomfortable. But actually, they didn't make you feel uncomfortable. You and your own imposter syndrome and your own self-esteem issues and your own inferiority complex made you feel and you can't just blame other people because that's your baggage. And actually, these men were very funny and they were very loving and they were very kind. And it's that way that when you're sitting writing that, that's the bit that you're wanting to get across. That was mm. the bit to go, look, these guys, <laughs> what a riot. Like, calling someone Liberace because they eat a cherry yogurt is genuinely <laughs> ridiculous, right? But that's kind of building, say, mm-hmm. changing room nonsense, right? Sure. And it's not particularly derogatory. It's just the daftness. And I remember thinking, you need to, you need to get the daftness into this because this is how it was and what you've done in that first draft, it it doesn't translate to the actual truth. And the truth was it was very funny. And the truth was it was actually a perfectly fine environment to work in. The truth was I've actually had more hassle in offices than I ever did on a building site. But because of the way we view things in this country through manual labour and having a trade as opposed to being white collar we assume that white collar men are much more well behaved than blue collar men when mm-hmm. actually in fact that's not always the case so that, that that's really interesting because that's almost like an, an not that it's an agenda but that's an observation of yours and it's a truth of yours that's rooted yes. in your experience of both of those environments and, and also you know my dad was an electrician so you know my uncle willie my uncle ross who were not my uncles, they were just the guys that my dad worked with for years and years and years, were a big part of my life. And they, they were just daft. And you could see, even as a kid growing up, when your dad was with his pals, he was daft. Because, yeah. you know, they worked away from home together. They all lived in the same houses together when they were away. And that camaraderie. And, and you do get that on a building site as well. Because sometimes you all just need to dig deep to get a job over the line. And, and that kind of bonding thing is there and I actually got to be part of that but yeah that was rooted in my truth and from mm. what I've seen and I'm actually trying to write a wee bit for my new show just now which is called The Merchant of Menace and it's about <laughs> <laughs> it's very good about, very good lovely <laughs> and, and, and it's about me kind of looking at the world going I'm going to upset the apple cap here okay and, and kind of being determined and I'm kind of writing a wee bit. Not similar to that, it's different, but yeah, and that kind of thing. So do you, do, do you think that, and I don't, I don't mean this to be a provocative question, but is there an element to which in that environment you were more able to cope with the tougher elements of it because you have a particularly, like you've got a sense of humour, you've hmm. got working class origins, you're pretty sort of you. I imagine you could be physically intimidating if you yes, wanted to be. If I wanted you know I mean? to be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm still tiny, but I'll have yeah. a go. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. You've got you've got tiny but have a go energy, right? I but always I think... think that's a working class woman thing because we've been brought up by working class women. I think that comes from your mother, your granny, and your auntie. You know, that's that type of mm-hmm. thing. That that women going, oh no 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 no, because. If you look historically back at life 
If you go and read The Road to Wigan Pier, very rarely George Orwell talks to a man about how much rent he's paying and the condition of the house. It's the woman, because she's essentially the manager of the house and the family. He's providing, because we're, we're talking about, you know, 1940s, <laughs> 1950s England, right? But it's not the guy. that He's talking to the guy about different things, about more sociological things that are, are he's observing that. But when he actually goes round and looks at the rent that's being paid and the standards and the conditions of which people are living in, it's women that he's talking to because within this country and within the working class, it's the woman who runs that. You know, I always say your dad never gives you bad news. Your dad never gives you bad news. Your mum gives you bad news. Your dad can't handle giving you bad news because he's your dad. So he doesn't want to get upset in front of you. And so he doesn't know how to deal with you being upset. Whereas your mum has, you know, wiped the blood from your knee and tied your shoelaces mm-hmm. when you fell over. So there's a thing, like, I remember, <laughs> I remember my dad's mother dying and my dad going, your mum's got something to tell you. Oh. <laughs> right? Because he couldn't tell it because he didn't, he didn't want to see that because he's the guy who will organise the funeral. Yeah. He's the guy that will sort out the sandwiches and where we're having it and what's going on. We'll go to the undertakers and we'll speak to the priest. All the practical things your dad will do, that emotional thing your mum does. And I think my attitude of going, no, I'm going to upset the apple cart here or I'm going to be a bit different comes from having sh- strong women in my life. Do you think, I mean, that, that I guess that plays into a, a great deal what we've just been talking about, about your kind of mass appeal, because you're able to take all of those positions. Do you mean you're able to speak from experience? I mean, I, I sort of think of someone like, you know, Mickey Flanagan, uh, who I used to gig with fairly often be- just before he went completely stratospheric. And um, he had that thing of like, he can talk to the working class people and because he's a self-educated kind of transitional middle class person, you know, self-educated intellectual so you, I mean, you're doing not only those things, but also with uh, from a gender perspective. You know, you, yeah. you're you're a, a a woman who is capable, as you said, of being like camp or feminine, and also, you know, or you've got really funny material about kind of the kind of butch lesbian uh, aspects of your personality and the yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and you know what? That's that's. Like, I've always been that kid. I've always been that kid that ran about with a football under my arm and and stuff like that. And, and you know, and like sometimes I'm like, lesbians now, they're no proper lesbians, you know, because we now live in a world where you don't have to look a certain way or women who have always been like me, who knew that we were gay from a very young age. You know, we, it, it's not like that now. We can look and carry ourselves a different way and your sexuality doesn't define that, you know? Mm-hmm. But I certainly come from an, an era and certainly just within myself, like I was always just a tom. Like, just, I mean, my parents, I mean, I get prams and dogs' houses, never interested. My poor brother was eight years older than me and I would just try and hijack Skeletrics and Sabutio <laughs> and snooker tables and he was just like, Why can't she play with her dolls? Do you know why is she why is she trying to play with my skeletrics? Do you know what I mean? So I've always kind of been like that, but do you know what? Like own it. I I'm also trying to write another bit just now about being Hey, listen, workshop it here. I love it. <laughs> I, about how I always get 
And you, you actually played it lovely, emphatically, Glaswegian. And that's a lovely thing to say. But what you normally get, and, and you'll know this from Edinburgh Reviews, and I certainly get this, is she's unashamedly Glaswegian. Yes, the implication being you should be ashamed of being Glaswegian. But unashamedly, for some reason, you're not. Yeah, yeah, but you're yeah, not. Yeah. Unashamedly working class. Um, unashamedly gay. Unashamedly Scottish. And I, I genuinely sit and read it and go... I have yet to pick up a review where someone says, unashamedly, from Hertfordshire. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's the cultural thing within the UK, and I'm kind of writing a wee bit about it just now, where I'm going, I never realised I had to be ashamed of this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, it, and it's a real thing, and it really, and it stems up the way, and it's a complete, it's nonsense, you know. And listen, it's not just Scottish acts or gay acts to get that. You know, you'll get unashamedly northern. Mm-hmm. What are they just sitting on stage drinking pints of Oxo? You know. <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So this is Susie. I mean, joyous, right? Right? I've got, I mean, this episode, and we've got like the next four or five in a row already in the can have this amount of punch and drive and a really exciting guest. And this is just, this is music to my ears. You may remember about a year ago or six months ago, look somewhere in between those, let's say nine months ago, uh, I was feeling tired and exhausted and a little bit dejected about my dear podcast. And, um, and now I could not be more back in the zone. So enormous thank you to Susie for coming along and sharing with us some of her experience and um, and some of herself. I always like to get to the, the heart of what makes a person themselves. Uh, in the second half, we're going to be talking about um, Susie's appreciation of the barriers in comedy and how to overcome them, uh, how she is overcoming them. Uh, we're going to be talking about recording a live special for the BBC and an old favourite of mine, embracing the fear of failure. Now, I would be doing you a disservice uh, if I didn't point out that you can see Susie McCabe live at the King's Theatre in Glasgow. We talk a little bit on this on this episode uh, about that. Uh, since we recorded this just before Christmas, she's added an extra show because it's all selling so well. I'm so thrilled for her. She's on at the, the 15th of March. 
Uh, and there is now also, uh, as well as the 16th of March, there's an 8.30pm show and a 5pm show on the 16th of March. That was a roundabout way of saying that. Um, so the 15th and 16th of March. And there's an extra show on the 16th at 5pm. That's much more succinct. Um, but let's leave both in just to emphasise the extent to which, if you're anywhere near Glasgow, you can see Susie at the King's Theatre. Go to susiemccabe.com for your tickets and you can follow her on Instagram at susiemccabecomic. You can see my award-winning <coughs> climate show, Spoilers, at the Leicester Comedy Festival on the 22nd of February. Um, the links are in the bio, the show notes for this. Um, it is very nearly sold out. I think there's 20 tickets left for that. Also, I'm going to be at Mach. I'm going to be at the decreasingly secret Welsh Comedy Festival, the Machancliffe Festival, um, on the Machancliffe Comedy Festival. I was so pleased with myself for nailing the pronunciation that I forgot the all-important word, comedy. Um, uh, that is going to be on the... I'm going to just jump in and say 4th of May. I'm sure it is. It's Saturday the 4th of May. Um, I may have either been moved to a slightly larger venue than I expected or there's been an admin error. We'll have to see. Um, but please jump in and get tickets for that. I've got bundles of those to sell. And um, it's I, I just love going back to Mac with a show. You know what I mean? One of those kind of like... Sometimes you do a, oh my God, it's Edinburgh soon, am I ready? And sometimes you do a, this is an absolute banger, please come and see it. So I'm in that cycle at the moment. Um, you can support this podcast. You might have heard me say watch. You might have heard me say the word watch earlier on. This is true. When you support the podcast at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, you can watch the full video version of this episode. This was a Zoom episode as many times as possible. Coming up, I am doing them in person. Who are the in-person ones coming up? We have in-person full video of Dara O'Brien returning to the show. Uh, the brilliant Martin Urbano, who's nominated for his debut this year uh, at Edinburgh, which is from the perspective of a uh, himself, imagining himself as a cancelled comedian doing a comeback tour. It's just superb. Leo Reich, who has a new special on HBO. Mawan Rizwan, you can still catch his sitcom Juicy on the iPlayer. Um, they are all recorded in person, so uh, all of that video uh, is not Zoom-quality video. Um, this Susie McCabe episode is Zoom-quality video, but it's good Zoom-quality video. So you get all of the extras from Susie, plus the back catalogue. Um, and also when you sign up, not only do you get exclusive guest announcements, uh, you also now get a monthly Zoom Stu&A. There's every chance that title's going to change. But uh, for now, it's a Q&A with Stu. A Stu&A. Is it any wonder Helen Bauer considers me cringe? Um, yeah, you can, you can tell how much that bit into my soul. I'm embracing it. I'm appropriating cringe. Um, but you can have a completely non-cringe-worthy stew-and-a with me where you could... We can't call it a stew-and-a. This is insanity, Callum. Anyway, um, one of your one of your uh, uh, new insider benefits is that we can get together and just sort of have a natter. Uh, and that will never be recorded or, or uh, streamed or shown to anyone else. So uh, we can all have a good old gossip. So there's that. Um... So, yeah, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to support the show. Uh, and let's get back to this episode with Susan McKay. I've got to pause on that sentence when you said, I never, and I realised the context in which you were saying it and the kind of the, the sort of sarcasm of it, I never realised I had to be ashamed of this. But it does strike me that sentence is sort of, is it fair to say that's kind of a, a bit of a keystone for you? Mm. Because... Like, was there ever, and forgive me if this is too personal, but my my sense is there was never a moment when you felt you had to be ashamed to be gay. No, Because never. you've just had that kind of like, I'm here, this is me, and I fit into the world and take it or leave it. It's that, yeah. And that's one of the, the aspects, I think, of that quality, which is the people's champion quality, is like, I never even realised I was supposed by society to be ashamed of 
this, 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 or this. It just didn't occur to me because I exist outside of that sort of paradigm. And that that's a thing as well where, I mean, I obviously, I mean, well, you know, I spoke about it in the show about TV and role models and yeah. how people didn't look like me and I knew that I was a bit different and I realised my sexuality at a very young age and all these things. But as soon as I came out, it was like a weight had been just lifted off my shoulders. And I came out at 17, so God knows what it's like if you've had to wait till your 50s to do that, mm. right? But it was like, but equally, and you know, I spoke about it on stage where my parents, you know, I had to go and live with my gran for two years, you know. It wasn't a thing, you know, it was 97, uh, New Labour had literally just came to power. Um, I left school, came out, and that was the start of adulthood. Like, literally, that was the, the, the starting pistol. And I, and I had to just go, well, do you know what? I'm what I am, and see if you don't like it, you don't like it. And see if you're not going to speak to me, you're going to put me out of the house. That's your choice, but you'll need to live with that for the rest of your life. I won't. And then, you know, years later, you kind of go, you know, they were brought up in a certain generation and they were brought up practising Catholics and this and that. So, you know what, they, they'd never met anybody gay. And then when you dig into that as an adult and then you put it into a show about how that EastEnders storyline that I speak about in the show mm. and the ridiculousness of it, but basically the message that was getting sent into living rooms up and down this country, that made it harder for people like me because of the assumption that if you if your child was gay and they went to a nightclub, they were going to die of AIDS. That would mm. I mean, that was basically what was getting perpetuated through the early, mid and also the late eighties, just into the nineties. So I think I've I've just decided I'm just gonna own it. And if you don't like it, it's not my fault. It's like, I see a lot of comedians don't argue with people online because they're like, oh, this isn't funny. And you're like, people are allowed to not like you. People mm -hmm. are allowed to not like your face. People are allowed to not like your material. People are allowed to not like your accent. It's okay. But at least won't it just be like, cool, mate. That's okay. Like, I'm, like it's just words. And, and, and you know, I'll, I'll be quite specific here. Jeez, oh, see white heterosexual men, these are terrible at taking criticism. Oh, my. No practice. Oh, my. I, that's it. And it, it's that kind of thing where it's like, well, I've been told I'm in my 40s and I'm going to inherit the world and why am I not inheriting the world? And you're like, because yeah. the world's changed and maybe you need to change. And then if someone says they don't like you, that's fair. But if you're going to say she's unashamedly, you're going, well, that's unfair because you're now criticising or commenting on my class, my accent, um, my background. Judge me on my show. Don't judge me on my background. Mm. And that works both ways as well. Don't judge me on my gender. You know, there's, there's, I've seen comedians be elevated into positions in comedy clubs that shouldn't be because they've literally ticked a box and then they've went out and they've absolutely stanked the room out because they're mm -hmm. not ready. But somewhere in somebody's head, the clubs went, we, we need to book them for that gig because we need okay. a woman. And okay. you go, you know, positive discrimination's not a great thing either. You know, you know what I mean? Is that, do you say that, like, how do you feel? How do you feel when you see that happen as someone who, I mean, you, you might hear that and kind of go, Susie, you're having a pretty stratospheric career and kind of building this enormous base and all the rest of it. Are there things that you 
feel that you are still being excluded from? Um, no, I don't think so. And see if I am, I'll kick the door in. See if they're going to exclude me. I will kick the door in to the point where they cannot exclude me. The point that you have got to take me because I'm 43 years old. I would say if I was 20 years younger, life would probably have been different. But life is what it is. So if you're going to put a door up or you're going to put a barrier up, gender, sexuality, accent, class, whatever it may be, I'll just kick the door in until the point where you actually cannot ignore me, where you actually cannot refuse me. Because if you are gauging me against 10 other Tommy. 10 other comics I'm going to force you to put me in the top three and if you put me in the top three and you give me a chink of light I'm going to take the chink of light and, and if I still don't get it I've done my very best and that's okay I've tried somebody was better in the day somebody was better than me that's okay we can all live with that I, and I've not had to blade somebody to get something I'll never ever do that I'll never stand in someone's head to climb a ladder yeah, you yeah. climb your ladder on your own ability. And there's a bit of me that just goes, I'm just going to kick the door in. I don't care. I that, don't care if that you bit of you, That bit of you, that core, that kind of steely core, <laughs> I just want to... I see that, absolutely. And I want to just, with that in mind, I just want to revisit that initial... Your initial kind of, I put a show on, people came, I didn't even know it, check your phone, I had no idea. I just want to revisit that idea. I'm not suggesting you didn't mean it or whatever, but that we now know you're a door kicker with a steely core. And I well believe that. I'm not, and I don't mean anything cynical by that at all. Absolutely. You, you know, and it's about, as you said, it's not about treading on other people. It's not about blading other people. No one's used that as a verb on this podcast before. But, (laughs) (laughs) But, but I just want to revisit that notion because I think sometimes in comedy, people can, as part of their kind of personal brand, appear a bit kind of wide-eyed. There's a particular comic I always think of about this, and I wouldn't name oh, them, yeah. but there's someone who's like, I can't believe all this is happening to me. And then you find out their kind of background and the work they did before, and you sort of go, I think that's a decision to let that be known, that you just can't believe it. Yeah. I'm just interested in revisiting that idea of how you started. You put on shows and obviously were completely legitimately surprised by how much of a crowd you were picking up. Yeah, I from was. That I mean, ste- even, from that steely perspective, how much of that was intentional, hungry? How much of that was an attempt to kick down doors by putting on show after show after show and scooping and building the crowd? Yeah, I mean, that. I mean that's always been a thing and that's always been my way. And by the way, that is for my, my life. I've been like that. Uh, I've been like that with regards to playing rugby. You know, um, there is actually a story in the new show about that, about playing rugby and going from football to rugby and and just being determined that, mm. no, I'm not, I'm, no, no, you're not telling me I can't do something. Mm. How dare you tell me? No. Um, yeah, genuinely, whenever, so that particular day where I didn't look at my phone because you're going, right, okay, well, I've sold out the stand, I've got a Saturday night, sold out the stand, that's amazing. I'll put this show on. It was a Friday night and it was a late show. And I genuinely didn't look at my phone because I was genuinely with Nicola and our phones were away and we're just spending some time together. And I was also so focused on doing the gig the next night that I had 3,000 people or something like that in His Majesty's with with Jason Manford, who I've never met. I was like, 
this is a, you know, that was the focus. And it wasn't until Nicholas said, you better pick up your phone. Yeah. That it was, it was sold out. And I was like, genuinely. Now, on the back of that weekend, that's how I got the King's Theory. And I was meant to play it the 28th of March, 2020. And obviously, I've just done the math. (laughs) Five days, five days before. And that's okay. And that was all right. And I went through that two years. And then we put it on in 2022. And obviously it was everybody who'd had the tickets because it was all the scheduling. As you'll know at that point, it was wild. And I remember walking out to the King's Theatre two years down the line and my opening gambit was, you kept your tickets. (laughs) You kept your tickets, you know. And it, like, my heart swelled and I remember the song before I went on, because this was my first time doing the Kings with my name on the door, you know, not as a support act for yeah, a charity yeah. gig. And then last year, I put on my show for sale, Femme Fatality. And I'd been writing the show, I'd been out performing it, I was down in London, kind of hiding away from Scotland, getting it all ready. Message comes through from the agent to say, BBC Scotland want to film your show. Right, to film aspect, the BBC want to film your show. And I was like, whoa, that's nuts. I put that show on sale in the October or November. The morning it went on sale, I get a phone call from my agent saying, we need to put another show on. The tickets have flown out the door. The tickets are away. And I was genuinely like, but that's 1,750 people. That's nuts. And he went, yep. And then obviously the BBC came in at some point, so we put the other show on sale. I had two sold-out King's Theatres. The BBC recorded it, and I'd only ran it through three times before I got to do this record sure. because he went, the way I work my calendar year. And then on Friday there, I put on the King's Theatre. And I was so nervous because obviously agent, comedy festival, talking to each other, come back to me and they go, we're going to put two shows and seal at the same time. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. That I'll play two half-empty rooms. Yesterday, speak to the agent, he's like, or no, Friday, he was like, a third, a third of your time, we've put three and a half thousand tickets on sale and a third has went out the door. Mm-hmm. So then you go, right, a third and you're just sitting going a third of my tickets like so I've already got over a thousand people that still amazes me see when you get a message on Christmas Day or Boxing Day and somebody goes you were a Christmas present and they send you a ticket or a screenshot that is like honestly like it's just pimple I'm, stuff I hope I, I hope I haven't uh, I hope I haven't asked the question the wrong way I don't mean to suggest for a minute that no. there is anything kind of um, that there is any any kind of front or sort of like PR spin to it no. or whatever. Um, I, I'm just interested in the, the relationship between your kind of innocence at like, holy shit, we've done it again. Holy shit, we've sold more yeah. tickets. When we, but in the light of the fact that we know you're a door kicker, is it that you haven't had to kick the door down in comedy because the tickets have just exploded? Or have you been, is there this kind of other side to it that we've yet to talk about, which is, how you got there by being determined and that determination and, and what it's 
what that it's, journey's been. It's the determination and also... Because I don't, do you see what I mean? I don't want the listener yeah. to kind of go, she seems lovely. Wow, everyone loves her. Because I think there is not more to it in a negative way, but I think like you, you're so empathic about the people who may have made, you know, the environments that might have been difficult. You're so empathic and you're so willing to forgive. I kind of feel like, I don't think we should skip over the fact that maybe it hasn't been easy. Oh yeah, no, I mean, it hasn't. I mean, it hasn't. And you get knockbacks and you go to gigs and you look at the lineup and you go, all right, okay, I'm still not good enough to close this gig. All right. And how do, and how does that how does that feel? Does it does that make you angry? Does it make you determined? Nah, do you let go of it? Determined, determined. You've got to be determined. You've got to just kind of go. Well, I tell you what, if you're headlining, you're earning your money tonight. <laughs> got it, got it. And for the for the uninitiated, I know what you mean there. What you mean is, if you're on in the middle and someone's headlining, you're going to go so hard that next time they can't possibly. You're going to make life hard for the headliner understandably, so that next time you can't possibly be not headlining. And that's not an ego thing with regards to that person. That was maybe about the club I was playing or the sure. promoter I was in front of. For sure, and you, for sure. And it's that kind of, you don't quite rate me yet, mm-hmm. so I'm going to put you in a position where you have to rate me. Yeah. And I remember... But I, I remember, think that's what I was after, Susie. I yeah. think like like people don't often like people do say things like that or allude to it. And I think that's what I don't think that's it's bad that you said it at all. But I think that steeliness is exactly what I was kind of probing for. Yeah, always I always had the 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 feeling that it didn't matter where I was on the bill. I just wanted the audience to remember me. Mm-hmm. Right? It didn't matter what else happened that night. Uh, they could go and buy tickets to see the headliner, go and buy tickets to see every act in the bill. Right? Great. But I just want you to remember me and buy a ticket to see me. Absolutely. So it, it wasn't about necessarily burning a gig or torching a gig or making life difficult for acts. It was never that. Because mm. I got on with all the acts. Mm. It was just about, for me, going every single one of the... Every single person in this room is a potential ticket for a tour show, for a King's Theatre show, for an Edinburgh Fringe show, for a, a work in progress show. Every single person in this room is a potential ticket. So what I'm going to do is do my very best on stage and it's so much so that if they like me, they will bother to go into their phone and find my social media. Mm-hmm. They will then like my social media watch what I'm doing, see where I'm playing, and come and see me again. Now, they might just come and see me at a gig, just a standard Saturday night gig, and I've maybe moved up the bill, but they see me do sort of stuff that they've not seen before, and they've went, oh, I loved it. Actually, do you know what? I actually think she's a safe bet for a £20 ticket at the Kings or a twelve fifty ticket at the yeah. Fringe. I feel that she's a safe bet. And I know my mate would like us. So do you know what? We're going to do that. I'm going to organise a night out, my mate. And that's nothing to do with any other act in the bill. No, 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 no. That's purely about you. Tell me about those things when you see if in that environment when you're like middle act. I've got to, I've got to, you know, I'm going to do my best. I want to, you know, I want to make sure next time I'm the headliner. What things? What sorts of things can you do? Like imagine a situation where you can peer back across time and whisper in the ear of young Susie McCabe, who's about to go on, what things have you learnt since then 
that you can do there and then. I mean, presumably a lot of that stuff is make sure you have new material that's tight and that's turned over. There's kind of work ethic stuff. But on the night, are there particular ways that you would approach or plan a gig or like a particular mood? Or, you know, that thing of just like, you know, sometimes you're at a gig and you go out there and you go, that's a bear pit. I'm going to strap on all of my put downs. Oh, do you know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> but what kind of things like that are there? So sometimes you're like you're saying it's the bear pit and you're like, oh, I'm rolling about in the sawdust the night, uh-huh. right? This is like all oh, the big guns are coming out and we're going to need to roll about the sawdust. And uh, and what the, and what and what does that mean? Is that the selection of material, the preparation of like material, what, what what does that mean? Also the ownership of the stage, right? Like I'm five foot two, right? I'm not going out and being like, hey hey. I'm going to be like, all right, right? I'm going to stand in front of you. I'm going to fill the stage and you're going to laugh. Like, my, my bit in my head is like, you're going to give me 30 seconds to make you laugh. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you laugh in 50. Bang. And right. they go, all right, all right. So you've went out there. You've had, now you could be following, you know, like, like, say somebody, like Ray Bradshaw, right? Like a really great MC, right? Mm-hmm. Is out on the stage. Big, tall, broad guy. Mm-hmm. And he's great and he's done a really good night and whatever else. Well, I'm five foot two. Ray must be about six, six two, right? Big, broad shoulder guy, beard, bald head, big guy. I need to go out and fill that stage. Mm-hmm. He has filled that stage. So I need to go out and impose myself in that stage but without being effing and jeffing straight off the bat, you just go out and you go, I'm going to make you laugh. Because you're going to judge me. Because every, everybody else in this bill's a guy, so they've got a minute to convince you. I've got half that amount of time. Yeah. And I need to convince you. Plus, I could be in the south of England where you're not attuned to my accent. Uh-huh. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to smile. This is, I mean, what the listener won't be able to see at this point is you just twinkled twice then. You just flashed me the most appealing twinkle. Just the first one, like, so it was so kind of unaffected. You were, I was thinking, yeah, she's got to go out there with ferocity and fill the stage. And then you smiled and went, no, not with ferocity, with authority, but authority that's kind of rooted in love and joy and happiness to see us. Oh, listen, ah. I know we've got a few head cases in, but don't worry about it. And then there's also that thing where a Scottish accent can also work in your favour, where if somebody tries to come at you and you're like, is that right, mate? I Like, it just sounds so threatening without you just, just that, all right, mate, like not smiling in a, is that right, mate? I And then the room's like, oh, aye, aye, aye. Yeah, he's he's yeah, taking yeah. a step back because he knows he's about to be schooled. Sure. You know, and there's that there's that thing where you don't even need to attack somebody. You can just, with authority, just press your foot down, take it back off, and we start again. You know, oh, that was really beautiful. That. I felt like I was I was squashed down and put back. <laughs> but you know, that's what you have to do. You've got to own it. And you've got to be authoritative. But you know, and you must have the belief. That you know that you're going to convince this this audience that that they're going to laugh that they've got that by the end of that set they are going to really like you they're going to he's going to want to go for a pint 
She wants to have a Chinese and watch Strictly with you. The youngins want you to be their auntie. The older ones want you to be their daughter. And everybody really just wants to be your pal. That we must we must wrap up, but before we do, I wanted to ask you about two two things, two last questions. One is about fear, and mm. the fear of failure, mm. which I think there was there was an element of of that in the the narrative of your mm. of the show that I saw, and I wonder how that plays into the life of someone who is you know is kind of. I'm not going to say universally beloved, but you get, you get on with people. They like you I, and they, they wave at you even. Po- <laughs> Cease has been in this podcast. I think you'll find, ladies and gentlemen, I'm actually now a national treasure. <laughs> if, you can a, get, if you can get a wave of someone with a, a, a conflicting team's football strip on because they yeah, love your stuff, yeah. do you know what I mean? I think we're, we're on the right track. But I'm basically I am, Judy Dench. <laughs> but I'm interested in that. We know that you're likeable. Yeah. We know you've got this steely core. What is that fear of failure rooted in for you and how do you manage that? Does that Never. come into work? Yeah, all the time. That's that's the door kicking thing. So you either embrace your fear of failure and use it to drive you and push you and make you determined, or you back off from it and you stay away from it and you don't improve. You don't get any better. What does that what that's fascinating? What does that look like? How does one like what are the steps? How do you embrace your fear of failure? What does that what does that mean? How do you do it? Because you've got to understand the consequences of it. So if I fail and I go out to the King's Theatre in March and I don't deliver a good show, I'm not selling the King's Theatre out for a considerable time because people won't go back. If I go into a gig and I've let the club down by being appalling, I've let that person down. If your agent gets you a corporate and it's been a disaster, like, I did, like most corporates are just generally terrible, but and it's been a disaster. You're not getting any more off of them. And that then has a consequence on your mood, on your ability, on your belief, because you need to have cojones to do this job. So you need to be able to go, look, that wasn't great, but it needs to be better. You need to self-reflect, work out what went wrong, where were you, where was the gig, was the sound system only working half in the room or were you in a terrible frame of mind to do that gig? When it comes to things like writing, I'm sitting writing something going, that's a good joke, but going, do you know what though? It's not the best joke. There's a better joke in there because that better joke is what sells a ticket for a theatre and not it's not a joke that could essentially be in a meme, you know? And I think, and that's that's harder and harder with comedy as more things come out and people do stuff. And but I think there is an element of me that's just like I need to be better because if I want to be the best I can be, I need to work harder. And you know yourself, Stuart, when you're writing for that first blank page, and you go, "I'm never going to be able to write a show as good as that last show." I'm never going to be able to sell out a room the way I sold it at that end, but I'm never going to get those reviews straight off the bat ever again. And then actually what happens is you go, I don't know if I will, but I'm going to try really hard so that when I do pitch up in Edinburgh or the Kings or I'm doing a tour, I've done it. It's still working and it's still improving, but I've done it. It's got there. It's landed. Everything's okay. Because the fear of failure 
is something that just continually drives me. It, 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 I mean, I, I, I mean, I have a knot in my stomach about failing and falling flat on my face, but you've just got to keep going and being better and getting your head down. And there's, there's no point in going. I'm scared of writing. I'm scared of a new show. I'm scared of putting something on sale. If you can back yourself and you've got evidence, you've just got to keep going. Hundred percent. Is that, is that approach mastering your fear? Or is it succumbing to your fear by like think, working so hard that your fear can't get you? Is yeah. that is that mastering it or is that yeah. also like you know, I've got an older brother who's pretty successful and considerably older than me. And I didn't find something I was good at like until I was 30, and it was this. It's not that I was bad at everything else. I just realized, you know, some people go. There's a moment when you realise you found your thing. I found my thing. My thing was telling jokes. And I went, right, so this is my thing and I love it. And from there, I, I've, I, I'm just running. I'm just I'm just constantly running with this ball in my hand going. Because the thing with this game is you don't retire from it. It retires from you. So you've just got to keep heading to the finish line, wherever that may be. And you've just got to keep going and keep going and keep going. But also, you've got to desire to be better. Like, you've got to... like. And you know what? See if you don't want to get better. See if you go, listen, I don't want to be traipsing up and down the country. I don't want to be going on tours. I want to play gigs within a 100-mile radius of my house every weekend. More power to your elbow. Fair play. You know, you are smashing it. You're nailing it. You're getting your money. You are happy. Because you've got to be happy to do this job. If that's what you want, there is absolutely no shame in that. I know guys who are some of the best electricians and brains, technical brains that I've ever met, and they would not take a job in the office. They would not become project managers. They would not become engineers. They would not become estimators because they were like, I just want to go to my work, do my job and go home. And there's nothing wrong with that. For me... I just want to keep going because I'll, I, want to, I want to still be doing this job in 20 years' time in some capacity or another. And I love it. And it is the greatest job in the world. And I I, I just want to be better. And I also just want to see how much better can I be? Like, I don't, like... I said this in an interview for a paper in Scotland. And they went, oh, you supported Kevin Bridges at the Hydro. Is that what you want? And everyone's got this opinion that arenas are, are the thing that comedians chase and I, I don't believe they are the thing that comedians chase I think given the choice they would rather play beautiful theatres but you can't do anything about that because once that tap's opened you've, you've got to run with it right and I kind of said to him listen no everybody can be the Beatles no everybody can be the Rolling Stones I'd be happy being the Kinks do you know what I mean the small faces and there is that thing like, no, everybody could go and play the Hollywood Bowl in the 60s. Maybe, what, five bands over the course of the world? But there was loads of other amazing bands that done really well and had great careers. And sometimes that's that's kind of where I would like to be. Are you happy, Susie? Oh, I Never been happier, actually. No, I've just got married. I got married um, a month ago. A month ago on Sunday there. 
Uh, Congratulations. That's what I knew that. And that's what I was going to start with. And then we got on to talking about Glasgow. (laughs) But yeah, congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, Yeah. very, very happy. Uh, My career is going great guns. And you know, yeah, year on year, it seems to have improved little by little. You know, I got like, have I got news for you and stuff like that. And then um, obviously you'll know this. I got the shout to do a pobo the other week and I've done that just after I get married and that was a really I, I didn't actually know that but it doesn't surprise me at all I sort oh, of I felt you. that happening when I sat in there watching the crowd go nuts before you even walked on stage I thought well presumably she's already done Apollo <laughs> <laughs> and amazing. you know the thing do you know the thing with that whole thing like about the music thing I genuinely spend ages picking out my pre-track playlist and my walk-on music because I, I, I value it so much especially in Edinburgh. Can see if you've traipsed about Edinburgh all day. Yeah. <laughs> queued for toilets, queued for pints, queued for all that on a Saturday, and you're coming to see me at half eight at night. That room's a very comfy room that I'm in. It's yeah, a beautiful right. lecture theatre. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah. I don't want you to be comfy. I yeah. want you to be up for it. You can lean on the on the things and put on your the head little down. Desk, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm just constantly like jabbing you. With yeah. with songs that are going to put you in a re- and then, I mean, I would say that probably ninety eight percent. I walked out each night to them clapping, and yeah. the music before it was the same music that I referenced in the show with the EastEnders, sure. but and all that, and then obviously the walkout music. So it's all of that, and it's about putting an audience into a state for your show, not just a show. They're not just coming to see a show. You put them into a mindset for your show because they're coming to see you. So let your personality come through. Thanks so much, Susie. Thank you. So that was Susie. Remember, you can follow her on Instagram at Susie McCabe Comic and you can go to susiemccabe.com to find out about her live shows at the King's Theatre in Glasgow on the 15th and twice on the 16th of March. So do that. Uh, Spoilers is at Leicester Comedy Festival on 22nd of February and the 4th of March, 4th of May, forgive me, I'm going to be at the McHuncliffe Comedy Festival. Um, You can find out details about them at stuartgoldsmith.com or support the podcast at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for video episodes, all the extras and guest announcements and the soon-to-be retitled Stu and A. And listen, if you were one of the people who listened to the end of the post last episode uh, and duly checked in on Twitter, social media, or in one case, text, uh, simply to say here, thank you, I was really struck by that, and it's made me realise how many people listen to the whole of the post which, if you're new to the show, is me waffling at you after we've officially finished. So I'm going to buck my ideas up and try to do better ones. The first one of those coming up right now. But before you listen to that, uh, you now have the opportunity to switch off and not listen to it. So let me just say thank you to Susie for coming along. Uh, Thanks to producer Callum. Uh, I've been Stuart Goldsmith, and the music was by Rob Smouton. The title was by Asher Trelevin, who named the podcast 13 years ago now. Um, and, um, and that is, oh, and the logging was by Susie Lewis. So, uh, we will have uh, a lovely little post amble now, but if you're not sticking around for that, see you next week with Moan Rizwan. So this is, listen, I'm going to say a brilliant thing happened last night and I'm going to talk about it on the post amble and I haven't planned it and it concerns delicate subjects. So I'm going to try and get through it, but I don't know whether, um, whether the fact that so many of you checked in and said here, <laughs> I should give you a different word this time because I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know whether that means that 
a small core of you. Because you think if, well, if 40 people checked in and say here and said here, I think only 2% of people do anything you tell them. So does that mean thousands of you listen to the whole of the end of the post amble? I can't believe that's the case. I don't know whether it means I should buck my ideas up because people are really listening or whether it means that you're happy for me to talk whatever shit you like. I sit here in my little cellar, having taken place last night in something really extraordinary, and I just wanted to talk about it. Um, and as I said, it concerns a delicate subject, and it dis it concerns another person's health, and I don't know what's mine to say and what's their story to say. But Moz, whose name you will recognise if you were an infinite sofa person, Moz was frequently on the infinite sofa, um, and also if you've been paying attention in the uh, the sort of the goodbyes and thanks at the end of the podcast, uh, Moz also logged a bunch of episodes for me. Um, Moz is in some pretty dire straits health-wise. I don't think he would mind me telling you that he's on the way out. I could read him. I could read you the Instagram post that he put up with uh, a full-body X-ray of his, which reveals just how his words riddled he is with cancer, um, and also uh, finished with um, <laughs> with him saying, "P.S. What a pair of bollocks, though. Great work from Moz." I took place last night in a, a gig, an online gig, thrown for and in honour of and attended by Moz and a bunch of his mates and a bunch of comedians. And it was such a joyous and uplifting experience. I just wanted to talk about it, really, because it, I came away from it feeling I think I'd been tense about it all day, not just because it's a Zoom gig and I remember them making me tense. I mean, the infinite sofa could have become much more of a thing had I not been crippled with anxiety at the very thought of it. Nothing to do with the people involved, but just, I suppose, my fear of not having done my homework, a huge part of my psychological makeup, um, you know, homework in is a wider, small eight sort of a sense, that kind of was compounded with doing a show from home and what I saw as my responsibilities to the people who were collaborating with me on, on the infinite sofa, the, the, the online pandemic show that I did for a, a year or more. Um, that became quite a tense thing. And so not only did I have the kind of Zoom gig tension in me all day yesterday, I also had this kind of what do you say to a gig which is being thrown in honour of and attended by someone who is on the way out. I can't even say <laughs> a different phrase to on the way out because it's such a, a weird and potentially eggy thing. Fortunately, John Pearson uh, compared the show and played an absolute blinder um, uh, <laughs> with, I won't repeat, some incredible roast jokes about the dire straits in which, uh, in which Moz uh, found himself um, and just set the tone brilliantly. I did a bunch of stand-up and I solicited some celebrity comedian pals of whom I knew Moz was fond to do little short pieces to camera saying, what a pair of bollocks, though. That was a lovely thing as well. Um, Chris Norton Walker uh, was uh, also doing some, uh, unfamiliar to me, but did some lovely one-liners, very, very funny. Uh, and then Mitch Ben did a song uh, in uh, that he had written specifically for Moz, uh, which was very funny and abrasive and rude and rhymed and brilliant and was its own kind of that thing that, that Mitch does so well. Um, and then it finished with, uh, I was able to play in the wonderful Paul Curry, who I think is Moz's uh, favourite comic, doing uh, panda hands, if you know that bit, but like at home <laughs> in his house, apparently driven mad with jet lag at the moment and threw it together and, uh, and did a special version of panda hands specifically for Moz. It was such a special fucking thing. And it wasn't having been worried about it all day, not worried, but like background anxiety about like what is this can I get this wrong who owes who to what just you know the way in which I like to give myself a hard time it was a wonderful 
joyful gig. And it was it wasn't sad at all. It was uplifting and special and brilliant. So thank you, Moz. Thanks for all your hard work uh, towards this show. Thanks for being a fan of comedy and a fan of my stuff and stuff in general. And thanks for being up for that. I can't quite remember which way round it all worked and whose idea it was. But what it turned into was something genuinely special that I will hold in my heart forever. And listen, I hope I, I'm, I will quote only a tiny bit from this directly. Paul Curry sent me the, the most wonderful message afterwards. He said words to the effect of um, what a pleasure to know that my silliness meant something to someone, to anyone, to Moz. That's special. I'm honoured you asked me to contribute to someone's last few days or hours on this beautiful, crazy planet and add to their billions of memories they've collected on their life's journey. It's utterly beautiful to be part of. And that is absolutely not cleared. I haven't checked with Paul if I can say that. I'm sure he'd be fine with it. It was, I mean, me and Paul had a sort of a, a text message conversation back and forth after that. And I ended up crying and I think he did as well. And um, it, it, what a what a wonderful thing for everyone. And I just, I just wanted to highlight that because I just, to add to their billions of memories they've collected on their life's journeys. That's what we're doing, isn't it? We're just adding to each other's billions of memories. And that was just an incredibly beautiful way of putting it. I felt so honoured and and happy to be part of that thing. So, um, yeah. So there. It was so, so there. So fuck off anyway. What a pair of bollocks though. Eh? Eh? So, um... Uh, thank you very much to Moz and everyone involved in that. And that will probably do us for this post amble. I'm actually going to launch headlong into uh, some more administrative podmin. The book is fucking coming along, I'll tell you that much. Um, there was a big break, so don't think I've been writing it for a year. I haven't. Um, finally, if you've made it this far, <laughs> if you've made it this far, could you just tweet at CogCogPod? Or on the new, hey, did you know about this? Instagram now has Instagram.com slash ComComPod. No one says it like that. There's at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy. That was the old ComComPod. There is new. There is now a new and bespoke ComComPod channel. So if you want extra video clips that don't get seen anywhere else, little promotional video clips and moments and what have you, jump on Instagram and follow ComComPod. Get in touch with me however you would like and just say, what a pair of bollocks though. Bye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.